Uh, I hope this works. Thank you very much. First, let me tell you that I am really proud to be here, and I hope it's the first time, but not the last time. I hope that I will be in the next years like that. You know, you must have some annoying old uncle, relative, who visits you, then you throw him out, then you throw him out through the door, through the window, he comes back again, or what, no? I simply like it here. Second thing, I hope you will not be disappointed because usually I'm associated with telling dirty jokes and so on and examples from cinema. But I told myself, why shouldn't I do for a difference something, well, different? Very naively to try to ask, answer the question, whither left. That is to say, where are a kind of a general balance, which of course, is more focused on the part of the world where I come from, but this precisely is why I would more than like to, to hear your reaction, where I got it wrong and so on. I'm sure there will be some disagreements. Okay, uh, let me begin with a brief reference to Lenin, the one of October Revolution. When in 1922, after the Bolsheviks won the civil war, they had to retreat into the so-called new economic politics of allowing much more market economy and so on. Lenin wrote a wonderful short text with the title On Ascending a High Mountain. He uses there a simile, a metaphor of a climber who has to retreat back to the valley from his first attempt to reach a mountain peak, he uses this metaphor in order to describe what a retreat means in a revolutionary process. After enumerating all the achievements and failures of the first five years of Soviet power, Lenin concludes, quote, communists who have no illusions, who do not give way to despondency, and who preserve their strength and flexibility to begin from the beginning over and over again in approaching an extremely difficult task are not doomed and in all probability will not perish, end of quote. This conclusion, to begin from the beginning over and over again, makes it clear that Lenin is not talking only about slowing down the progress, fortifying what was already achieved and so on, but precisely on descending back to the starting point. One should begin from the beginning. A revolutionary process is not a gradual process, but a kind of repetitive movement of you try, you fail, you try from the zero point again, and so on and so on. And I think here is where we are today, after the disaster of 1989, the definitive end of the epoch which began with the October Revolution. One should therefore, here may be the point of the first disagreement, one should therefore, I claim, reject the continuity with what left meant in the last two centuries, at least in the West. Although, of course, we should keep in our memory sublime moments like the Jacobin climax of the French Revolution, the October Revolution, and so on and so on. This 
story is over. We should begin from the zero point. Uh, let's admit it. It was already emphasized this morning in the first uh, intervention how it seems as if capitalism triumphed. The most reliable sign of capitalism's ideological triumph is, at least in the West, in the last decades, the virtual disappearance of the very term capitalism. Now you will say, but what about anti-globalization movement? I think that a close look quickly shows how anti-globalization movement, and this is for me its limitation, succumbs to the temptation to transform a critique of capitalism itself, centered on economic mechanisms, forms of work organization, profit extraction, and so on, into a critique of imperialism. Now, let me avoid a misunderstanding, my God. I wrote two books dedicated to the critique of the role of United States today, and so on, and so on. So the last thing you can accuse me is to support in any way United States. I'm just saying that if you read closely how the term anti-imperialist struggle is used, I see a danger there. The danger is that by, how should I put it, personalizing the enemy, by talking instead of capitalism about American imperialism, you sustain a very dangerous dream. The dream of, again, you see I'm just enumerating misunderstandings, and then I humbly wait for you to counterattack, a dream which I considered a very dangerous, potentially reactionary dream, a dream of alternate modernity. A dream that, you know, the West, at least in Western Europe, did it in one way, in their own way, this liberal, exploitative, individualist capitalism. We can do it in a different way. We can have modernization and so on without all that. I think this is a dangerous trap. If you think this, you, as they say in English, which is not my mother tongue, you want to have a cake and eat it. You want capitalist modernity without paying the price for it, with all the antagonisms and so on and so on. Uh, the dream is that the horrors, struggles, wars generated by capitalism uh, are just something basically proper to West European capitalism and that we can, or you or whoever, can do it in a different way. Why am I skeptical about this? Because, you know, in Europe, throughout the at least first half of the 20th century, we had one big movement of alternate modernity. It is called fascism. Fascism is precisely a project of alternate modernity, of we can have technology, industry, everything, but, as they put it, without the Jewish corruption, class struggle, we can maintain harmonious society, and so on and so on. So we should be very clear here. Modernization means today capitalist modernization. And uh, I'm not saying, I'm not a kind of a crazy radical, pseudo-radical leftist who thinks, reject capitalism, whatever. I am aware of the constellation in which we are. All I'm saying is we should be aware that the antagonism, the contradiction, to use the old Marxist term, is not 
in some wrong application or local culturally conditioned version of capitalism, it is in capitalism as such. So that all different versions of capitalism, I agree, there is not only Western capitalism, there is what we poetically call capitalism with Asian values, which means less poetically authoritarian capitalism, no? And there is Latin American populist capitalism and so on and so on. We should be aware that with just changing the forum from the West, you don't, you don't get rid of capitalist antagonisms as such. So again, all this talk, you know, this is the danger I see in the talk of anti-imperialist struggle. Of course you should fight it, but don't personalize enemy too much. The problem is not there. Okay, to provoke you even further. Uh, when we talked, as you did very nicely, about financial international finance, it would be good, and I'm not attacking China here, but it would be good to, impair, to compare the international capital, how it functions precisely in this tension between United States and China. Do you know the incredible amounts of money invested by China now in the United States? Because we know what's the problem, you who are economists know better than me, I know only the superficial things. Uh, what's, how does the United States survive? Basically, it's they really treat us all as, as some kind of a feudal master. They need, which is masked then as a, a trade deficit or whatever, they need till now, now it's even more, minimum one to two billion dollar, billion dollars per day. And they get it as investments and whatever. But they are paying a price. I read somewhere that in very global numbers, around 10% of United States, if you take all real estate factories, to compare the international capital, how it functions precisely in this tension between United States and China. Do you know the incredible amounts of money invested by China now in the United States? Because we know what's the problem, you who are economists know better than me, I know only the superficial things. Uh, what's, how does the United States survive? Basically, it's, they really treat us all as, as some kind of a feudal master. They need, which is masked then as a, a trade deficit or whatever, they need till now, now it's even more, minimum one to two billion, doll, billion dollars per day. And they get it as investments and whatever. But they are paying a price. I read somewhere that in very global numbers, around 10% of United States, if you take all real estate factories, is already owned by Saudi Arabia and China is catching up quickly with it. And this can incidentally lead to unpredictable developments. So that's my first point. Uh, what about this big defeat of the left? And it really is a defeat. In what sense? In the sense that, you know, when I was young, and also maybe some of you, we were dreaming about so-called socialism with the human face, without the Stalinist distortion and so on. It seems to me as if most of us today are, even if we proclaim to be leftists, are really, really dreaming about, let's call it, global capitalism with the human face. You know, it's the same system, but we say a little bit less... Uh, less racism, sexism, and so on and so on. So let me improvise quickly 
which are, the way I see it, you can correct me here, main types of the reaction of the left to this historical defeat. I think it's the whole spectrum of versions. The first one would be simply to accept global capitalism and as, as Americans like to say, the only game in town, and then just to play within it. As, as uh, Peter Mendelssohn, the corrupted dark prince of the labor government in the United States, put it, in economy we are all Thatcherites. All we can do is then, you know, invest outside economy a little bit more for education, healthcare, this, that, and so on and so on. This is the third way. This is even in a different way, of course the so-called Chinese way, and we have many other variations of this. I wonder if you also debated here in Latin America and Europe what is popular now, not so much as actual politics, as, as theoretical debate, although in Brazil they passed a law on it, they tried to realize it, but they are far from it. It's the so-called idea of uh, basic citizen's income or I think it's much more appropriate, the term they use in Brazil is renta basica, the basic rent. The idea being that capitalism can only be justified if it serves the common good, which means, and the problem is, how to unite capitalism with social justice and so on. The idea is, let capitalists thrive, but tax them, and so that you can guarantee to every citizen a certain basic income which allows him to lead a minimally decent life. I think this is, for reasons I cannot develop now, a little bit of an ideological dream. The, so this is then the first version. The idea is, okay, capitalism won, let's play within its rules. Then the second uh, uh, the second is the opposite reaction. It is withdrawal. Withdrawal in the sense of, yes, capitalism won, it is at least for some time here to stay, but we should nonetheless resist it so, and this is for obvious reasons popular, especially among academic intellectuals, so don't dirty our hands withdraw to small artistic communities, academic communities, do there the safe cultural analysis and wait. But you know, wait with the pleasure of knowing that you don't really risk anything. Uh, I found this very suspicious. Aldous Huxley, no, the British writer, he said something very nice in the late 30s about British progressives. He said that he has the Impression, sorry, mistake, it's not Aldous Huxley, it is George Orwell. He said that his impression is that whenever British progressives call for change, it sounds as a superstitious mantra, if we talk enough about change, it is sure that nothing will really change, you know. This is why radic some radical so-called intellectuals like radical big proposals. They say, no, this is not enough, demand more. Because secretly they know if you demand more, it often equals demanding nothing, as they put it, no? And it's also morally a comfortable uh, position. Uh, then the third position, again, at least in Western Europe it's popular. It is, you accept the futility of all struggle. You say that 
fighting capitalism sooner or later leads to imitating the enemy. You become in the same way militaristic, totalitarian, and so on and so on. So we should basically wait, withdraw, and wait for some magic moment of catastrophic divine violence. I mean, authors who are very popular today in the West, like uh, Adorno of Frankfurt School, like Giorgio Agamben, their attitude is this one. It's ridiculous to play political games, but, you know, wait for the catastrophe. Uh, 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 then the next position is the one that I also reject, it's the apparently more radical philosophical one, up to a point connected with the previous one. It's the one of saying uh, the crisis is not only because of capitalism, it's a deeper metaphysically grounded crisis. They, 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 no, no, I love this. I love what you are doing. I will try, you know why? I dedicated my book, uh, 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 in defense of lost causes to my good friend Alain Badiou who, it's a wonderful story once uh, he asked me for a phone uh, saying that he wants to uh, uh, he is expecting an important uh, message so wh while I was talking in a hall like this the phone rang he started to talk and then he asked me up here if I can talk a little bit with a lower voice so that I don't disturb him. No problem for me. This is what friends are doing. Okay, sorry. Let me go on. So, uh, you know, the idea is that the crisis is metaphysical. Usually in Europe it's fashionable to say we lost the holistic attitude. It's the technological attitude. It, the guilt is our techno technological, scientific civilization, and so on and so on. Then, the next version, popular also with some practical people, is this idea of local struggle. Don't aim directly for power, organize local communities, and gradually you will undermine power without directly, uh, directly attacking it. I like this metaphor because the idea is a little bit like, you know, if you lo look at especially American cartoons like Tom and Jerry, Mickey Mouse, you have there always one classical scene. Let's say a cat walks. A cat walks across the precipice, it doesn't fall down. Only when after a certain time a cat looks down, uh, it notices, then it falls. No? So that's the idea. We build our local communities, self-management, then at a certain point we just call those in power. Hey, look down. They notice, they fall down. I'm skeptical to this one also. Then we have the postmodern politics. The idea, it's usually put in high theoretical terms, is that the era of class reductionism or economic essentialism is over. There is no reason now to privilege economy. We have a whole series of multiplicity of struggles, cultural struggles, sexism, racism, human rights, ecology, and the point is just to open desperate strategy of which I doubt that it works. They claim that, uh, that uh, today with so-called post-industrial capitalism where the shift is more and more towards, uh, towards intellectual work and so on and so on, communist, communist 
vision is closer than ever to realization. They go very far here. They claim that this so-called digital virtual capitalism almost already is communism. We just have to change it a little bit. We are there, we just don't know. I'm a little bit skeptical about that. But what I'm saying is that what we should avoid here is to claim, oh, what I enumerated now are just wrong versions, deviations. The problem is deviations from what? I don't see today any convincing global vision. You know, it's like, to put it in old Stalinist terms, we have all the deviations, revisions, but we don't know what is the main party line, how should they put it, no? As if, you know, this would be a nightmare for a Stalinist. Whatever you do, it's revisionism, it's a deviation. No, it's deviation without the principal line. So, and it is true that capitalism, you know what's the problem with capitalism? One must admit this, that it has an incredible capacity to, to return from every catastrophe even stronger. Already Marx used for capitalism the metaphor of a vampire. I would rather say the living dead, you know. You kill him and then, you know, all those horror movies, oh, it comes to haunt you even stronger. It is true. Namely, look, for example, at the uh, Chinese great cultural revolution, a radical attempt to create new men if there ever was one. But now, now from, I, I don't support it, but what I'm saying is that now from our perspective, we can say that cultural revolution worked like shock therapy for capitalism in the sense of Naomi Klein. I cl cling to this. I claim that because the effect of cultural revolution was to destroy the past, the texture of traditions, and so on, and so on. And it created the void, which was then effectively filled with Deng Xiaoping's uh, 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 capitalist reforms and so on and so on. So is this my message? Precisely not. Don't be afraid. I am of, of, on your side. More than ever, we need communism. How? Let's look nonetheless at this defeat of the left. I'm sorry if I will be now a little bit limited to European perspective. That's my world. Uh, you know that recently we celebrated, if it was a cause of celebration, the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. But one should note something there. This is the first common sense observation. People didn't want what they got. I mean this in a very naive empirical sense. If you ask, let's take the most triumphal case, uh, Poland. If you ask the Polish workers in Solidarity Union, if you look, not if you ask, if you simply look their documents, what do they want? To put it in naive terms, they wanted some kind of a solidarity, a rough kind of justice. They wanted to live their lives outside state control, to come together and talk as they please. They wanted a life of simple honesty, sincerity, uh, the life without prevailing cynical hypocrisy, and so on and so on. As many intelligent observers noticed, what they wanted is, even in a paradoxical way, close to the official ideology itself, at least if we read it uh, literally. So then people were disappointed. 
How are we to read this disappointment? This disappointment is then expressed in very interesting ways. One is that so soon afterwards, in free election, successor of ex-communist powers came back to power. Second form of disappointment, the most interesting one for me, is a retreat to kind of a fundamentalist nationalism. It's a typical move of, of uh, deceived anti-communist. They claim that this is very popular to say in many East European countries now, that even the, that, that capitalism liberal, Western capitalism, is basically no better than communism, that they are both the same side of the same decadence, we should return to our proud national traditions and so on. Maybe you remember the old anti-communist motto was better dead than red. I heard now a new right-wing motto, better red than eating hamburgers. Like, you know, that's the enemy. Or, as a right-wing friend explained to me, we share, we right-wingers, with communists the same principle, authoritarian organization of society, that's how they perceive it, but they claim, we, we are just opposed on how to do it, content. But they claim, with liberal capitalists, we share nothing, not even this. There the contradiction is absolute, as it were. And so on. Let me not get lost here. Let me just make the point how, when the people were disappointed, so, with new capitalist freedom, how are we to interpret this? The predominant West European reaction is to treat it as a sign of immaturity. People were stupid, they expected too much, they thought capitalism is only freedom, consumation, as they ironically put it for East Germans, they thought they will get free pornography and bananas and so on. They had to learn that capitalism also means hard work, you can fail, responsibility and so on and so on. Now we have to gain maturity. Uh, it is, first one has to concede, it is that the European left had died twice. Not only in 89 the communist left, but also its twin social democratic left. It took a little bit longer, 20 years. But if you follow what goes on now in Western Europe, social democratic parties are, I claim, in a serious crisis, which is not simply the usual exchange. You know, in France they are practically disintegrating, in Germany, in Britain, in Italy, and so on. And uh, I claim that as to the dominant political mapping, a new antagonism is emerging. If in the old uh, West European scene we usually had Two big parties, apart from smaller parties, center-left and center-right, usually, I don't know, let's say conservative or Christian popular party and social democrats, so, and they, they, they exchange each other in power. Now a new duality is emerging, a kind of a centrist, pure capitalist liberal party, which is usually politically, sorry, uh, culturally tolerant, gay rights, whatever you want, abortion, and as the only reaction to it, reaction strong enough in electoral terms, uh, 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 nationalist uh, fundamentalists. It's, for example, it happens one after the other. The first shock was, you remember, how many years ago, ten already, when, to the surprise of all, Le Pen emerged as the second for the second round of presidential elections in France. In many countries now, 
even in Netherland, Holland, where they celebrate themselves the most liberal open society, the nationalist uh, uh, anti-immigrant racist basically parties, the second strongest. This is, I think, I cannot judge about you, but definitely in Western Europe and somewhere else also, I think, the greatest danger. We are approaching an era where, if I may paraphrase Sigmund Freud, who spoke about, in German, Unbehagen in der Kultur, discontent, uneasy, uneasy in civilization, uh, about uneasiness, discontent with liberal capitalism. The tragedy of the Western Europe is that, and not only of the Western Europe, is that the only organized large political force which successfully gives voice to this discontent are fundamentalist racist nationalists. And it's an incredibly sad phenomenon. How, so again, how to break anti-immigrant racist basically parties, the second strongest? This is, I think, I cannot judge about you, but definitely in Western Europe and somewhere else also, I think, the greatest danger. We are approaching an era where, if I may paraphrase Sigmund Freud, who spoke about, in German, Unbehagen in der Kultur, discontent, uneasy, unease in civilization, uh, about uneasiness, discontent with liberal capitalism. The tragedy of the Western Europe is that, and not only of the Western Europe, is that the only organized large political force which successfully gives voice to this discontent are fundamentalist racist nationalists. And it's an incredibly sad phenomenon. How, so again, how to break out of all this? It is, I think we should start at the very beginning. It is a standard thing to say how uh, uh, how 1989 meant the end of utopias. The utopias are over, now we reach maturity, we see capitalism is the only thing which really functions. But I think nonetheless that uh, if there is a meaning to the first decade of the 21st century is that this utopia, Fukuyama utopia of the 90s is dying, died twice. I think that precisely the two events which limit the first decade, September 11th attacks and then uh, at the end financial crisis. September 11 attacks mean, if they mean anything, I don't think they were such a big event, but if they mean anything, they mean a sign that liberal democracy is not a forum which can simply be applied to the entire world. And the financial crisis means second death of the more economic aspect of liberal capitalism. Uh, so uh, uh, my point is that we may all laugh about Fukuyama, end of history, but again, as I already said, you know, secretly even the large majority of our left is Fukuyamaist today. Nobody even talks today about you know, the problems we were talking 30, 40 years ago. Is capitalism here to stay or will there be another society? Is the state here to stay? Can we, it is as if 
these basic things are here to stay. Even, as my friend, American Marxist Frederick Jameson pointed out, referring to all these catastrophic films, to 2012 and so on, it is for us today much, much easier to imagine the end of the world as the end of capitalism, you know. Okay, an asteroid will hit us, some virus, we are all dead, but somehow capitalism will go on. You cannot even imagine a change, a change of uh, capitalism. So According to Gerald Cohen, in classical Marxism, working class is characterized by, first, the fact that it constitutes the majority of a society. Point two, it produces the wealth of society. Point three, it consists of the exploited members of society. And point four, its members are the needy, poor, needy people, parts of society. And then... From these four features, two further features follow. The working class has nothing to lose from the revolution, and it can and will engage in a revolutionary transformation of society. But there is a point in Cohen's observation that today we still have a majority, we still have exploitation, we still have poor, but they no longer, even in the long term, belong to the same group of people. Those who work, workers, are usually not the poorest. Even those who are the poorest are not always those who, those who protest, those who rebel, and so on, and so on. So, uh, what does this mean? That it simply disturbed, confused the field? This brings me to the crucial question, which is, I think, the question we all face today. Uh, is capitalism here to stay, which means, will it be possible for capitalism to, even if it's a little bit transformed, to contain, at least, if not resolve, its contradictions, antagonisms, or are we facing today problems, antagonisms, which will prevent the indefinite production, reproduction of capitalism? Of course, I will not cover all this Problems. There are many, many problems. For example, deep things can be said about the so-called moral vacuum of, that the global capitalism is creating. Deep things can be said about how the so-called capitalist permissivity is 
misleading that how contemporary capitalism involves new forms of domination. What I mean by this, just to amuse you a little bit, let me give you a brief anecdote that I like to repeat. We have traditional paternal authority. And we like to say today how the authority is no longer paternal, it's more permissive. But permissivity can have its own traps, like, again, my own story from when I was young. Let's say you have a, an authoritarian father. It's Saturday or Sunday afternoon, father tells you, we have to visit grandmother. I know she's old, boring, but you have to do it, behave properly, obey. No problem. You will do it, you will rebel, it goes. Let's say you have a postmodern permissive father. What will he tell you? He will tell you something like, you know how your grandmother loves you, but nonetheless you should visit her only if you want to visit her. What's the trick here? The trick is that apparently the father is giving you freedom of choice. But, you know, every child, and they are not stupid, knows that beneath this freedom there is even a much stronger order. The order is not just visit your grandmother, but you must like to visit your grandmother. It's a much harsher order. I think this is one of the great tricks of, of permissivity today. The problem, another problem, people praise sexual liberation. That's why we have depressions and so on. Because at least in the West, friends are telling me who are psychoanalysts that... Uh, People no longer feel guilty today for having perverse desires and then you go to a psychoanalyst who liberates you and you can enjoy it. No, people today feel guilty for not being, for, how should I put it, for not being able to perform, for not being able to act. People feel guilty for not enjoying. The big guilt if you cannot sexually enjoy. So the idea is that the psychoanalyst should return you to enjoyment. The paradox is what? The paradox is that it is precisely, and that's one of the lessons of psychoanalysis, this shift from permitted sexual pleasures to ordered sexual pleasures, which causes depressions, impotence, frigidity, whatever, whatever you want. The worst thing your father can tell you is to tell you, why don't you seduce girls, where are you, be a man, and so on and so on. Okay, but these are other amusing stories. Let's stop with this and let's go to four absolutely serious, crucial problems, which, as I see, generate also what we should still call proletarian Position, although not quite in the same sense as Marx. So, four spheres which I think generate problems which cannot be solved within liberal capitalist framework. First, of course, ecology. On the one hand, one should emphasize the infinite adaptability of capitalism. Capitalism is able to turn every crisis in a new source of investment and profits. If, if half of the United States go underwater, they will open up a new market for reconstructing whatever and so on and so on. And up to a point it works, like you can tax pollution and so on. The problem is that when we are dealing with the threat of large catastrophes, you know, if you have a small valley polluted, you can do it through market means, because markets work through competition, trial, and error. But when you have Chernobyl of global warning, you cannot say, we will try this way, if this doesn't work, we will try another way, and the market will decide. We will all be dead before the market decides. It is, why? Because we are effectively 
entered a new era with the latest scientific developments, a new era where, uh, uh, as we all know, humanity, maybe for the first time in history, has the ability to, to perturb, disturb the entire natural cycle of life on earth and in this sense to, to destroy uh, in this sense to destroy itself. And what's the problem here? A lot could be said about how ideology is crucial. Sorry? Yeah. No, what I want to say is that look the Copenhagen talks, which as we know failed. I think uh, a Copenhagen talk in December about uh, uh, how to face ecological threat. Compare Copenhagen talks to reaction to financial crisis one year ago. Although we know it's our survival at stake, in Copenhagen they were dealing, negotiating, we have time, not 50, 40 billion dollars and so on. You remember how when the financial crisis broke out, in one week they found first 750, then more and so on and so on. And something very interesting happened there. You remember, Bush was still president. First Bush went to Congress demanding that the Congress votes for the money. Congress first said no, American Congress. Then the entire American elite came together, Bush, Obama, all of them, and basically their message to the Congress was, don't play games. This is now no time for democratic debate, we need this money. In one week, the Congress... So this is a big lesson of how capitalism functions. We can... We can debate about everything, ecology, hunger, age, and so on, when it comes to financial capital, money, there is no joke. You simply have to do it there. So uh, my point here is that uh, the lesson of the Copenhagen fiasco is that neither private capital nor state will do it. This is for me the very sad lesson of Copenhagen, that we need some kind of, I don't know how will it look, communist mobilization. By communist I mean something very uh, precise. I mean, I refer here to a wonderful distinction, before you were talking I heard about private public, by, you know, the German philosopher, one of the biggest, Immanuel Kant, he opposes in a very interesting way, which is more than ever actual today, public and private use of reason. For him, private is not when you sit with, with your friends in the kitchen. Private is precisely state apparatus and so on. Private is when the debate is subordinated to some corporate community goals, so that you know in advance we serve the state, we don't criticize the state, and so on and so on. For Kant, public use of reason is a more radical, universal one, where you are no longer bound by... So we need that kind of a public use of reason, which means uh, that... Uh, which uh, means that another thing, that uh, there is tremendous lot of work to be done here. Ecology is a problem, but as you, especially in India, must know, it's also one of the main fields of ideological struggle, of ideological investment today. It is used to punish you, countries in development, like uh, don't develop and so on. It is used as a source of new obscurantist ideologies and so on and so on. And my solution here, again to provoke you, is a radical one. 
The only truly radical ecology is the ecology which claims nature doesn't exist. Don't be afraid. Not in the sense of a stupid subjectivism, like, you know, I just invent nature. In the sense that what is usually in ecologist ideology meant by nature, a kind of a mother nature, you know, big, living, homeostatic system which we humans disturbed with our bad, uh, evil technological exploitation Nature is crazy in herself. If it's a mother, it's a pretty crazy mother. I mean, just think about oil. Are we even able to imagine what kind of a mega catastrophe ecological must have happened for us to have oil, reserves of oil? So the message is not don't take ecology seriously. The message, I think, is an even harsher one. Uh, there is no natural balance to which we can return. It's an open, risky process. So first, ecology. Second field where I see insoluble problems. The inappropriateness of the institution of private property for the so-called intellectual labor. As you probably know, the, these new digital industries and so now fight again and again with the problem how to keep the results of intellectual work in the form of private property. If there is one good thing about intellectual work, which produces knowledge, expertise, is that in contrast to material products, it multiplies by use. If I have a car and you buy it from me, if we both use the car, it gets used faster. If I produce or you a piece of knowledge, the more we use it, the richer it becomes. It's, the logic is already in itself much more uh, communist. So what I'm saying is that this is why more and more today we are dealing with state regulation and so on and so on, or with all these absurd consequences where you also in India were victims. Wasn't there a case, everyone was shocked, when... Uh, a method for healing or whatever used for hundreds of years by your farmers was patentized in the United States and all of a sudden your farmers learned that they had to pay for what they were doing for hundreds of years and so on and so on. So again, I claim that uh, intellectual, so-called intellectual property, it will get more and more crazy. If we live free path to it. We will live in a totally crazy situation where even our thoughts and so on will be owned by others. The third domain, don't underestimate it, is are the socio-ethical implications of the new technoscientific developments, biogenetics and so on and so on. It's interesting to know that Fukuyama himself, who is not a total idiot, admitted, I met him at some debate recently, that the very fact of biogenetics changes his diagnostic. Now he admits. No, no, uh, uh, no end of history. Why? Because uh, something is so radical is potentially happening, which I think will change maybe even our very elementary definition of what it is to be human. I refer here not only to the fact that in predictable future, it will be already possible to, through genetic manipulations, change not only our physical properties of newborn children or even adults, but especially psychological properties and attitudes. For example, my friends in China gave me, gave me a kind of a 
big plan of Chinese Academy of Sciences for, and they are pretty open there. They claim that their goal is, to cut a long story short, to control the entire Chinese population, its physical and mental health. You know, like, to genetically, in the long term, reduce aggressivity if needed or whatever, and so on and so on. Another thing which I think has incredible consequences, even philosophical ones, is, for example, what defines us as free human beings? The fact that I'm, I am in here, in my thoughts, reality is out there. You know, this is what gives you the freedom. I can think whatever I want. This is falling apart. First comes the good news, which is that you know that scientists are already slowly, it's still very modest, but it already works, breaking the barrier between thinking and doing. For example, I saw on TV recently, I think it was in Florida, they generated a wheelchair for the crippled, where you don't even need that finger that Stephen Hawking uh, moves a little bit, simply your brain is scanned and at a very primitive level still, but nonetheless, it's the computer through electro-rays and so on, magnetic, can read your basic, as it were, order attitude, these very primitive orders, forward, backwards, left, right. So you just think about it and it moves. I claim there is something terrifying in it. Why? On the one hand, you can say we become like gods. No, you think there it is. But remember, what goes out comes in. That is to say, they are already thinking, they just don't talk about it so much. How also new ways of controlling your mind. This is not a utopia, they are just doing it like crazy. I was told already United States and other armies, very primitive example, they discovered that uh, uh, when you are in a total panic, your brain produces, generates certain electromagnetic waves. I simplify the story. The point is that if you generate artificially these waves and I bombard you with them, you will be in a panic. So they're already massively doing it. You no longer even need firearms. You simply bombard a certain area with these waves and so on and so on. So what I'm saying that the nightmarish prospect here is that this crucial developments in biogenetics will be either privatized or totally controlled by state. Again, it's a question of our human dignity, survival as humans, not to reactionary repress it. Not to say this is devil's work, let's not do it. For that it's too, too late. But again, some kind of mobilization will be needed, which is neither private capital nor simple state regulation. Now, what has all this to do with communism? Did you notice how, I would like to return here to the old Marxist notion, not only Marx, of commons, and the idea of enclosure of the commons. Commons in the sense of what should be out there as our shared substance, which belongs to all of us. That ecology deals with uh, external nature, as air, water, what should be there to all of us. Uh, Biogenetics deals with the commons of our inner nature, genetic identity, inheritance, and intellectual property deals with our, let's call it, symbolic commons, symbolic substance. And in uh, 
in all these three fields, we can isolate something like a terrifying forthcoming uh, new proletarian position. We not only have the Marxian proletarian, a proletarian from whom the product of his or her work is taken, we even have today, let's say, when you are more and more deprived of even your environment being polluted and so on. I think it's quite reasonable to talk about some kind of ecological proletarian position. When all your intellectual media are privatized or taken from you, it's a kind of a intellectual proletarian position whose nice metaphor, although it's not a great film for me, is you remember Matrix, the first one at least. You know how they just lie there, <coughs> their energy being sucked out of them, their thoughts controls intellectual proletarians. If your biogenetic structure is manipulated, you are genetically in a proletarian position. But now I come to the crucial point. And then I will finish. All three, these three fields are not enough. We need a fourth crucial piece of struggle, which is, again, the old Marxist class struggle, but class struggle in even, an even more radical form of new apartheid. I think, you know, globalization, in a kind of nice example of dialectics, don't ever forget that globalization in practice always also means its exact opposite. If you look to each specific country, globalization usually means the elite or part of it exploited gets globalized, the other part regresses even further back. The biggest example of perfectly globalized country would be for me the country where maybe the suffering, if we measure it in this primitive quantitative way, is the greatest today, Congo. Republic of Congo, Kinshasa. It's a country which doesn't function, people have starved and so on, but at the same time, all the local warlords are connected with foreign companies, it's fully integrated, which is why it's not simply left out. The way Congo is today is fully integrated, globalized. And so did you notice how if the symbol of 8990 was the fall of the Berlin Wall, today new walls are emerging all around. West Bank, Palestina, Mexico, United States, Europe is talking about fortress Europe to protect from immigrants and so on and so on. I claim that the reality in each country of globalization is self-globalization precisely means the way we know it, stronger divisions between those who are in, those who are out, different forms of exclusion and so on and so on within each country. This is why, and I claim, if you don't link the other three struggles that I mentioned, ecology, biogenetic, intellectual property, to this struggle against new inner separations, divisions, exclusions, if you don't do this, then you solve nothing. For example, you can well be a reactionary ecologist with all even the racist undertones, claiming, you know, countries like India, Brazil, they are destroying us all, we need more elite white culture, whatever, and so on and so on. Even like biogenetics, you can be a very conservative there, claiming this is the devil's work or whatever. So what I'm claiming is that our situation is this one, how, as we all know, slums are exploding all around today and uh, and uh, this struggle, the, the 
key task of the left for me is to kind of a, establish a chain among all these struggles, to offer the struggle for the rights of those, they may be Dalits or scavengers here, excluded, to link this struggle to, to all other struggles. Why? Where do I see the difference between the classical Marxist notion on, and with this I will conclude, working class proletarian and our situation? Marx had a right intuition, but at the same time I think he missed the point when he developed this idea of what he called general intellect, which is the idea that uh, with the development of productive forces, knowledge, scientific knowledge, expert knowledge, becomes more and more the key factor of production. And in his Grundrisse manuscripts, maybe you know, Marx even develops quickly, in a passing way, a vision of how once knowledge will become very, very important, capitalism will simply have to disintegrate because uh, knowledge will become the main source of value. What Marx didn't take into account is the possibility of reprivatizing this general knowledge, our shared substance. This is, I think, the key to this stupid question asked in all the media. Why is Bill Gates, if he still is, it all the time changes, the, most, um, uh, the richest man in the world? I don't think you can play the classical Marxist game of extra profit, extra exploitation. I have an answer which I think is still Marxist, but not the traditional one. I tend to agree with economists who claim that today capitalism is in a way, paradoxically, up to a point, returning from profit to rent. What is Bill Gates doing? He, what is the source of his wealth? Why do we pay him? so much for using, because he privatized part of our intellectual commons. In order to be able to participate in social space, communicate with each other, you have to go through his property, as it were. We pay him a rent. We pay him a rent for his quasi-monopoly situation. So I think that in the intellectual property, that's an important way to say, it's not, you cannot deduce it. Bill Gates doesn't exploit very much, at least not, his workers and so on. You cannot put it in that way. It's intellectual, we are paying him rent. So, uh, and I think the same is going with natural resources. Oil and so on is not for Marx a source of value. We are, what we are paying when we pay for oil is rent. Incidentally, there is a nice irony here. When Marx in Capital explains why only human labor is the source of value, not natural resources, you know what is his example? Oil, precisely. A little bit ironic, taking into account how much money we have to pay to oil, but it is clear, that's my point, if you take either Microsoft program or oil, that the price we pay has nothing, okay, has something, but not a lot to do with money or work spent to produce these commodities. The way the price of Microsoft Windows goes up and down, it's not that Bill Gates says, oh, now I have to pay more programmers, I will raise the price. It, with oil, it's the same. The price fell, as you know, in the crisis, down, up. It's not because of production costs and then you charge the extra profit. It is rent. This, I think, points towards a very difficult 
dangerous but potentially redemptive development. How, what is happening today, I think, it's not that we no longer have the working class, but it is divided more or less into three. Three which basically fit these three domains, intellectual work, physical work, and so on. We have so-called intellectual workers' classes in the broadest sense of scientists, journalists, professors, and so on. Then we have the old-fashioned material workers and then those who provide more material resources. I think that three main classes which are systematically generated by today's capitalism are Again, intellectual laborers, the old manual working class, and then simply the outcasts, those who have to be displaced to get access to mining and so on and so on. What is so interesting and the most dangerous development for me is that each of these three classes is more and more subclasses, rather precisely, there are three factions of the working class, is more and more developing even its own life world, ideology, for example, at least in the developed West, I don't know how it is here, you can immediately identify a member of intellectual class by the food he eats. They don't eat hamburger. They eat this disgusting healthy food, you know, a slice of salmon with two carrots and so on. They are usually more liberal, open, promiscuous, postmodern, even in religion. They like fake Buddhism, fake Oriental thought. The traditional working class is more conservative religious, usually old family values, and so on. And then you have the outcasts. And it is crucial to, know, it is crucial to take into account this division into three, I, because I claim that the, the entire ideological machine thrives on keeping these three parts apart, which is why they promote all these cultural wars, and so on, and so on. So, again, I claim that uh, I'm at the same time, now to really conclude, a pessimist and an optimist. I'm a pessimist because I don't think the game, the way we know it, liberal capitalism, can go on indefinitely. I think that the choice, in not 100 years from now, now in the next decades, it's either a gradual return to, not return, change, transformation of capitalism into a more authoritarian capitalism, this is one option which shouldn't be neglected. That even in the West there are clear signs in today's Italy, France and so on how the developed Western democracies are getting depoliticized, effectively more authoritarian. So I claim, but I use here the term socialism in a different way than you do. If by socialism we mean a rather reactionary thing, in the sense of asserting some kind of community values, more cohesion. I claim, ironically, the future will be either socialist or communist. By socialist, I mean a kind of authoritarian, fascist, in a new way, organization of society, for example, ecological control and so on and so on, control, control of immigrants and so on, through which Capitalism will try to contain its contradictions or inventing new forms of inventing new forms of communism. And so more and more there will be the proof 
there will be chance for radical politics. The proof is precisely for me what people claim as the main counter-argument, the rise of religious fundamentalisms. You know, Walter Benjamin said something very nice. He said, every fascism is a sign of a failed revolution. And if there is somewhere this is true, it is the so-called Islamic fundamentalists in the Middle East. They are there because the secular left disappeared from the Arab countries. This is our first, this is the ABC, the first step of radical politics. You read in the media what are the struggles today. You read, ooh, fundamentalists, as if, if you read the media, the basic problem is liberal, permissive capitalism versus religious fundamentalists. The first step of the left is to see that this is uh, not so much a false division as an immanent conflict to capitalism where both sides codepend on each other. It's capitalism itself which, through its dynamics, generates fundamentalism. A simple proof, if you need one, Afghanistan, which is today presented as the ultimate fundamentalist country. Wait a minute, I'm unfortunately old enough to remember 30, 40 years ago, Afghanistan was maybe even the most secular of Muslim countries in the Near East. It had, you remember, a secular pro-Western modernizer king. It had a very strong local communist party and so on. Then, when, you know the story, communists tried to take over, Soviet Union intervened, United States intervened and so on. It's through this globalization that Afghanistan became fundamentalist. This is absolutely crucial to learn. Fundamentalism is not the remainder of some dark past. It was generated. And the same goes for my God United States themselves. They have their own fundamentalism. Let's take one of the states, it's a crucial example, Kansas. You maybe know Wizard of Oz over the rainbow, all that bullshit, no? But Kansas as a state is today the most fundamentalist uh, Christian Bible Belt state. But till 20, 30 years ago, it was the most progressive state of the United States of the America. All big leftist populist movements, anti-racism and so on, started there. So you see how literally it is true when that uh, this, uh, the problem with this struggle between liberalism, permissivity and so on, and fundamentalism is that a third term is missing. Radical left. And I think that if we do not enter, then it's not that I don't have sympathy for liberal values. I have great sympathy for freedom of choice, all that they praise so much. But I claim that in the long term, our message to them should be only ridiculous as it may sound, only we can save you. Only radical left can guarantee in the long term that we will still have even freedom of choice, women's rights, and so on. Without us, we are witnessing a new, more authoritarian capitalism. And to conclude, the difficulty of the situation is that we no longer can have, I think, this old Marxist trust into what ironically we call the train of history. You know, like, history is on our side. We meet, we work for the historical tendency. I think I'm more of a pessimist here. History brings an open position. If anything, if led to itself, the system 
will rather move towards some kind of new catastrophic authoritarianism or whatever. I claim that we cannot count on any divine agency, even in the Stalinist sense of, you know, this position of a Stalinist communist, we are just instruments of historical necessity. There is no necessity guaranteeing anything. You know, like how com old communists using this metaphor of we are riding the train of history like to say, yes, there is always, even if the situation looks dark, a light at the end of the tunnel. I say, yes, but this light can also be another train coming forward to you, no? And again, here I would like, although in the last days I heard and said many critical things about Gandhi, I would nonetheless like to finish with uh, one of the well-known Gandhi's motto. You must know it all. Be yourself the change you want to see in the world. Or, to make another version of it from Hopi Indians in America, we are the ones we have been waiting for. You know, don't have this comfortable attitude of waiting others to do it. Especially, I'm criticizing here, not you, but West European intellectuals, leftists, who like very much to be radical but keep their careers safe. So they love an authentic revolution which happens somewhere far away, you know. Soviet Union, Cuba, name it. Today, Venezuela. Because you can be radical, your heart is warm and... You can feel good with them while here in your country you play the same uh, dirty academic games who will get the post. But deep in your heart you are radical. The, no, this, this, uh, this, uh, these games have to stop. Already Rousseau, the philosopher, got it because he said that all, he said, Rousseau, that all French philosophers like very much to sympathize with Mongols because this allows them to ignore the poor at their doorstep, you know. So be careful of Western liberals who sympathize with you. They are the worst. They use you. So again, my message is, you got it, at the same time, good and bad, no? Don't, you know, when my friends tell me, but why do you want change? The system will go on indefinitely, can't you see? My point is... Uh, I don't worry that there will be no crisis. There will be new crises stronger than and so on. Uh, we live in a time which is a very dangerous time. Why? Because we don't even see at the levels that I designated intellectual property, biogenetics, ecology, new social tensions, how many things are happening. This is the most dangerous time where it appears that just capitalism is slowly progressing, nothing is happening. Be be careful that we will not be like that cat above the precipice where we will still think we live in a nice capitalist democracy, then we will be thought, ah, ah, we are already here and we will all of a sudden fall down. So again, it's up, it's up to us. There is no excuse and, uh, how to put it, the last thing you have to worry is, are what we want, a radical change, utopia, and so on and so on. No, there is only one utopia today. It's the utopia that things can go on indefinitely the way they are. So I don't have any precise formulas here. I don't have exact advises how to do it and so on. I'm just saying only a more radical act can solve us. Without that, we are approaching... Did you see, just to really finish, with a comical example from my favorite domain, cinema. Did you see, it's not so well known, it's, maybe only some of you know it, uh, Terry Gillian, Brazil. 
It's a kind of a negative futuristic utopia, British film, about a country which is authoritarian, but not in this old fascist sense, a leader proclaims. It's a kind of a perverse, permissive totalitarian society. You know, everybody can enjoy promiscuity, sexuality, consumerism, but at the same time, authoritarianism is here. I think that uh, uh, ex-Soviet Union, Russia, Italy today, many countries are approaching all this. Here, I think, again, we have to be the change we are looking for. And if, because I'm here very apocalyptic, nobody will do it if not we ourselves. If we don't do it, our liberals who today suspect us of totalitarianism will see their own freedoms taken, taken from them. So I think because of all this, the left, at least in the West, in the last 10, 20 years, was, how should I call it, the left of excuses. They said, oh, we were guilty of those totalitarian horrors. Excuse me, we will not do it again. And they all the time try to prove that they are not this. So a typical, still in the West at least, leftist wants terribly to prove that he is not the old-fashioned working class guy. Screw the trade unions. We are for progressive capitalists and so on. I think it's time for the left to stop this uh, how should I call it, uh, uh, apologizing attitude. We don't have to be ashamed. It's our time again. Thank you very much. So there we are, and uh, now the, we'll open this up to the floor. Um, we'll start with uh, Usha Zakarias, who will kind of uh, kick, kick off this, this debate, this open house debate. May I request all of you to wait for the microphone before you speak, uh, partly because all of us can't hear you if you speak without the microphone, but also because we are recording the proceedings, and unless you, if you don't speak into the microphone, the question won't be recorded, and we we'd very much like that for archival purposes. Uh, Usha. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot, Professor Zizak. Uh, I actually criticized you in your absence, uh, you know, when you were not here in the room earlier. My paper was on your book, and I uh, did criticize your apocalyptic... Uh, your latest one. First as tragedy and then as farce. And uh, I did criticize your apocalyptic vision about, uh, you know, the present state of capitalism. And uh, perhaps we can start off for a, a debate about capitalism itself, the nature of capitalism in Asia right now and India right now, whether you see global capitalism and the features that you just described, uh, the loss of the internal commons, the loss of the external uh, and, the you know, uh, uh, the symbolic substance, if you think those things are also relevant to Asia today or to India today. And I know you've just been here for two days, so it's a really unfair question. Uh, you can abandon that and open the, uh, it to the floor if you like. Sorry, what then is exactly your question? How is this, what I developed, yes. relevant for Asia? Exactly. I think it's, 
Okay, to be very brief, because as you may have noticed, I speak too much. So I will be very brief. I think it's extremely relevant because one of the nonetheless, okay, I wouldn't say good things, but things which fascinates me about global capitalism in its new, however we call it, postmodern age, is that it's much more dynamic, less linear. With the old capitalism, you needed decades to accommodate yourself. You know, an undeveloped country needed decades to catch up with it. Today, it's not only India, take Singapore and so on, how practically in one generation you can, in some sense, uh, catch up with. At least, at some, now you will say, but we in India, we still have all our problems, costs and so on. And this brings me to the crucial feature where this is what interests me in India. You are not special here. In the, I mean, not special in the in good sense for you. That when people think, you know, there is this racist cliché in the West. This is almost the main association with India today in the West. Uh, uh, Bangalore programmer, excellent programmer, but nonetheless, in the morning, before he goes to his job, he burns the incenses to some divinity and so on. What a paradox and so on. But I think this is the logic of global capitalism. I don't think global capitalism works. Here I disagree with some post-colonial thinkers who read global capitalism as a threat to local traditions. I think yes and no. Often it even resuscitates local traditions. I think global capitalism thrives with and needs multiculturalism in the sense of all the diversity of culture. If nothing else, it's a wonderful uh, market. It prevents political unification and so on and so on of the opponent. So what I would say is that uh, India is for me usually if there is one thing where I would change my book, it's that I would add India to China. There I take, if you read it, you know, as the model of where maybe we are going China. China in the sense of a capitalism, which is, it looks even more dynamic, productive in all senses, also in destructive sense, productive than Western capitalism. But I think the liberals who think, give them 10 years another Tiananmen revolution, no. But you in India are maybe, maybe here you will, maybe not, I don't know. It's always a mystery where something new emerges, no? With your nonetheless much stronger embedded peaceful spirit of, at least, I know you also have problems, I'm not an idiot, but nonetheless, spirit of tolerance, let's call them naively democratic traditions and so on, you are in a situation for me where what I'm tempted to call the contradictions of global capitalism are condensed in a certain way, where I think maybe you, I don't think that new phenomena, new in the good sense of new emancipatory phenomena will emerge, they will emerge, I don't think they will emerge in really poor non-developed countries. They are too desperate, they cannot do it. Unfortunately, I also don't think they will emerge in the developed West. We, are, we have to look to countries like India, where, you know, you have already, remember in Russia, 
it was similar in 1917. It was undeveloped, but at the same time ultra-developed, like India. You know, people forget that Russia were not just primitive uh, 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 100 million or however of farmers. It was also a very developed working class, developed scientific art, and so on and so on. I see India as a potential site. So that would have been sincerely my greatest uh, self self-criticism. But can I ask you a very brief question? Where do you disagree, this is what I don't see, with my basic characterization, very vague, I know, of global capitalism today? Uh, well, I think the symbolic substance, for instance, yeah. you know. What so I call I, symbolic I, substance. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by it, because you don't completely elaborate it, and I was also wondering how that would particularly relate to India. I simply mean what Marx called general intellect, you know. Yeah. The, idea being that, the idea being that more and more I accept this development predicted by Marx himself, uh, that more and more knowledge distribution control organization of knowledge is one of the key factors, which is why the... Con the the control for it, the struggle for distribution of knowledge is one of the key struggles. This is all. I don't mean anything mysterious. What I don't agree is, nonetheless, those who th see too much of an easy solution in it, like Tony Negri. He simply thinks with this new capitalism, uh, communism already won. For him, we are almost there. He even said in an interview in Brazil, I'm here as an evil detective, you know. He's careful not to say this in Europe. But, you know, there in Brazil he thought we are not reading it. He said, uh, no need today to fight capitalism. Capitalism is already communist. We just have to reappropriate it. That's way too much to say for me. I just wanted to ask you two questions. One is basically you described about the Jacobin terror and the Stalinist terror. Is there any difference between the Jacobin terror and the Stalinist terror? Jacobin. Jacobin terror and the Stalinist terror yep. and what is happening as the so-called Islamic terror now? Is there any distinction between these three genealogies of terror? Which is the third one, sorry? Jacobin, no. Jacobin terror. Yeah, yeah. Jacobin, Stalinist, you said the third one. Third one is Islamic terror. Ah. Oh. Absolutely. Absol no, no, no. Wait a minute. When I say, okay, let's even add the fourth one, the fascist, Nazi terror. Absolutely, but don't misunderstand me, because here the field is so sensitive, the liberal hegemony is so strong that if you even insist on a difference between Stalinist and Nazi terror, you are already accused of justifying Stalin or whatever. I'm not saying at the level of human suffering... Maybe Stalinism was even a little bit worse. Why? Because, uh, look, let me improvise a little bit. Maybe it will amuse you, but these are tragic stories for amusement. Let, let's say I am an ordinary citizen in Moscow 36 or in 37 or in Berlin 37. In Berlin, let's say, and this is to say a lot, I am lucky enough uh, not to be a Jew, not to be ex-communist and not to have any enemies in the Nazi party. Under these conditions, I can be pretty sure to survive. Till the war, of course, then, no? 
Let's say I'm an ordinary citizen in Soviet Union in 37. The Stalinist purges were much more irrational, irrational in the sense that they can hit anyone. It was the, the logic of Stalinist purges was a totally different one. I tried in my other book, Defense of the Lost Causes, and some previous books, uh, I tried to develop some differences. Let me give you a simple example. You, do you know, and I read this in a book, Anne Applebaum, a Gulag, very critical. Do you know that every year on Stalin's birthday, even in the darkest Gulag, all inmates were collected, I mean gathered, and they had to sign a telegram to Comrade Stalin, wishing him all the best for his birthday and, and so You cannot even imagine the same thing in Nazism that they would collect all the Jews, make them sign a telegram to Hitler or whatever. Another thing, in Stalinism you have this show, great show trials, you know, Bukharin, leaders accused of treason, confess. You cannot even imagine the same uh, trial in Nazi Germany. There was no big trial against Jews as part of discovering fascist plot. Why? This brings me nonetheless to some ideological component which I find a little bit marginally more terrorizing in Nazism. Namely, paradoxically, Stalin needed these short trials and so on because even if you, okay, not you, me, sorry, even if I am, let us say, the lowest scum, the lowest traitor in Stalinism, I am formally, I know this is a pure form. I'm still treated as a responsible human being who made a wrong decision. This is why I'm able to confess. In confession, confession means I still have access to universal reason. You know, if you read these terrifying reports on Stalinist trials, uh, an accused functionary, Bukharin, comes and says, I became a traitor because of this, that. He, as it were, gives an account of himself. This is not possible in, uh, in fascism. There, there is nothing to prove. You are guilty just for being what you are. You are guilty as a Jew. Second thing. Uh, now you will say, but what has this to do with the distinction? It has a great thing. Because I think that, uh, I think that there is one, another big difference between, now you ask me, Stalinist and fascist terror. Fascist terror was directed against perceived or imagined enemies. The inner purges were minimal. After in 34 Hitler got rid of SA, he had to do this to get rid of the brutal thugs to be able to function as a state leader. After that, did you hear about any great Nazi dissidents, while Stalinism all the time had to fight its own dissidents. The, in Soviet Union, the most dangerous place to be in the mid-30s was not even a farmer, ex-clergy, it was to be a member of the top nomenclatura. Look at the data. From 34 to 37, 75% of the Central Committee members were shot as traitors, 80% of the generals in headquarters. Paradoxically, now here we may start to disagree. Paradoxically, I claim, this permanent urge to, as it were, self-destroy itself 
is a sign of a lost authenticity in Stalinism. They were all the time in some way aware, you know what I mean, an authentic revolution was betrayed. That's why it was called in this self-destructive urge. Can, you, are, can I interrupt you in this moment? You please. said about authenticity. authenticity See, Stalin, 1970 Stalin, Lenin. Yeah, I know St what I'm talking Stalin, about. Stalin was asserting the authenticity of the revolution. In what, that, what do you mean no, by authenticity? This was exactly what Robespierre was trying to do. Authenticity, Robespierre in 1791, Robespierre was trying to do the authenticity of the revolution. Because Robespierre said that the authenticity of the revolution was being betrayed. What? The same thing, yeah. Stalin was also feeling that the authenticity of the revolution is being betrayed within. So, how do you account this thing? Okay, who, who, who is going to determine the authenticity of the revolution? Okay, oh, what I, I, I can answer you. Not now, but in a detailed analysis, what can be shown? I'm not talking now about some abstract authenticity. I'm talking about that if you look at the history of what we called Soviet Union, it's clear that in spite of all horrors and so on, something... Uh, there was an emancipatory dimension in 1917. I've read books about it. I don't buy the story that it was just Lenin's coup d'etat and so on, and like five top Bolsheviks. There was an emancipatory explosion going on there. And the difference even between Leninist and Stalinist terror is that precisely Leninist terror, red terror so-called, was much more open and honest. They didn't hide anything. They openly said, this is terror. In Stalinism, it fun, but what I wanted to tell you, is, I'm not saying that Stalin, I'm not talking about Stalin's authenticity. I'm saying basically, although don't agree with him, that what Trotsky said, Stalinism itself betrayed authenticity. Now you will say, how do I know this? I will tell you by analyzing Stalin himself, all his acts, that's my point. The proof is not that I from outside know the inner truth of revolution and if this would be my, even up to a point, I would say psychoanalytic approach, you know, like from what Stalin did, it's clear that he's fighting, as it were, his own demon, how should I put it? That, that he himself acts as a traitor, the one who has to, as it were, erase all the traces of its own past. As to Jacobin's Robespierre, there you touch a sensitive point. I'm absolutely pro-Jacobin. I know they say Jacobin terror. Let me give you some facts which you don't find in ordinary books. They all talk about Jacobin terror. Why? Because they cut a couple of heads of the rich. Do you know that in three weeks, Thermidor, after Robespierre fell, more people were beheaded than the entire Jacobin terror. But they were poor, anonymous people, nobody cares about that, and so on. Second thing, listen, Robespierre terrorist. Do you remember how Robespierre and Jacobins lo lost power? With the vote in the National Assembly. I'm sorry, this is not the way you overthrow a totalitarian leader. Third thing, one thing you should say about Robespierre. This is their heroism. I mentioned it in Hyderabad already, I think. For me, even more important than French Revolution was Haiti Revolution. The first black slave rebellion, which was not done in this archaic way, we just want to return to our tribes. No, they said, 
if friends said equality, fraternity, we want it, and so on. And all the glory goes here to Jacobins. When the black delegation from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, visited Paris in 92, I think, they were celebrated as one of us, and so on. When Napoleon took over, he immediately sent the army, and so on. So, you know, uh, how should I put it, uh, the first good thing about, or, uh, now, if some of you like art, and so that you will see that I'm not just... Uh, primitive Marxist that I also do high art analysis. For me, the alt, but this is typical intellectual elitism. For me, the highest proof that uh, Jacobinism was not some kind of a proto-Stalinist terror is painting. You, I hope some of you know the painting, which is the definitive painting of French Revolution, Jean-Louis David, The Death of Marat. You know Marat, radical revolution. Okay. Do, do you know, remember, how that painting looks. This is, let's say, the uh, entire picture. In the lower third, you see Marat in a bathtub, dead, and then what do you have here? Nothing. Void darkness. It's as if the, the, the void that haunts the revolution was there. A totalitarian would never allow that Darkness. Two-thirds of the painting is darkness. You know how would that painting look in a Stalinist version? Where you would have the dying Marat, and then up you would have some kid's version of what he was thinking when he was dying. Happy French people singing in freedom. Tell, you know what I mean? The, the fact that they allowed this void darkness to be seen meant for me simple fact they were not... They were not totally, and this was not to This was not a marginal painting. This painting was displayed in Paris. It was a pop. I admire a revolution which is able to make, to produce a painting which functions at its defining and uh, emblematic painting. Such a weird, uncanny, anxiety-provoking painting. You don't find this. You don't find this there. So again, to return back to you, if anything, Stalinism was pure horror and so on. And I'm also not, read my book on Lenin if you don't uh, believe me, I'm not playing this boring Trotskyist game of, oh, if only Lenin lived two years more, he would have made a pact with Trotsky and Soviet Union would have been a thriving, rich country. So no. I wanted to bring to do that, that particular no, point. No, I think, I think yeah, it was a, particular point of Lenin. a tragic fate from the beginning. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I, I, th this is my final question. So, I just wanted to ask you this thing. See, there is a, there is a, there, there, there is a uh, continuation saying that it is basically Lenin which has led to Stalin. There is hardly any difference between Lenin and Stalin. Uh, that, that, there is at least one difference. Read Lenin's last texts. They are tragic. He said things are lost. He said it's even ridiculous to talk about socialism. He said all we can do is to bring a little bit more of bourgeois culture to Soviet Union. Lenin, Lenin's last politics was the exact opposite of what one year later Stalin advocated socialism in one country. There is at least this big difference that Lenin, you, I agree, I'm not sanctifying Lenin. I'm just saying that in the last years Lenin saw 
all the, when you quoted, somebody quoted just before this, when this, you know, Lenin, working class, and so on, Lenin, uh, party of the working class, Lenin even said something wonderfully sarcastic in 22. He said, in Russia, we have the dictatorship of the working class party without the working class. He said practically all of the working class was killed in the civil war. He was open to all these paradoxes. He knew it's nonsense to talk about working class dictatorship, there is no working class and so on. I like this totally resigned despair, but nonetheless pragmatically taking, taken despair of the, of the late Lenin. Yeah. So, so uh, we'll have um, Akil has a question, and any others who need to ask, we should just so that I identify. Yeah, we'll we'll have the gentleman then. Then I'll come to you. Okay. So, uh, uh, I agree with you that uh, uh, the radical left is is the only source of of uh, real politics in uh, in the future. But I was just curious about how different and more difficult it is for movements to have effect now than they had even 30 or 40 years ago, you know, in the 60s or, or before that. The, just the difficulty of, of movements. Thanks very much, Mark, for this question. Because yeah. questions we begin with, I agree with you. Yeah. It means while you are saying this, you are already sharpening your knife. <laughs> behind. No. Sorry. No, I see your problem, and I'm even very critical here. Some people thought the Porto Alegro anti-globalist movement. Yeah. I think it's still a pure protest movement. Right. Sorry, so, I'm sorry very much. So, you see, one of the, the, the difficulties is, is this, and I just was wondering if, if you were sort of clear about, about it, because I'm, uh, I think I'm clear about it, but, but I'm just curious to, mm. to know how you think. You see, one of the, the things is that in the last 30 years or so, when a movement succeeds, and uh, and you get a, a form of change, a left change, there's a terrible fear of whatever happens that there'll be, a, there'll be capital flight. Capen capital flight. Flight. Oh, yeah. There'll be the flight of capital. So you get a progressive government as a result of a movement, <sighs> but then there's this fear that there will be capital flight. So even if somebody's come into power on a mandate, which is progressive, they find their hands tied because... You know, since the dismantling of the Bretton Woods institutions, there's a, a capital flight is much easier than it used to be 40 or 50 years ago. So there is the fact that there can be movements, but what, they, what emerges out of them is constrained just by the nature of, you know, a changed form of capital. Now, what I'm curious about is, are developments like Morales and so on in Bolivia, do they show that... Fear of capital flight is just simply irrational. I, sorry. You, that, that's it. That's yeah, the question. Yeah. No, I see your problem. Yeah. First, I must say that the reason I admire Morales much more than Chavez, I think he or even my big hero would be Aristide in Haiti. This is why he was overthrown. I admire these people because, especially Aristide in Haiti, 
They knew they are taking over in a totally desperate situation. They knew, but nonetheless, pragmatically, they tried to do modestly here and there whatever can be done. So what I'm saying is that here I'm very uh, pragmatic. I know this is a very real problem, and I deeply agree with you. What's the story of the left in the last decades? It's some progressive leaders like Mandela in South Africa, Lula in Brazil, taking over for the first, usually it takes about two years to, to, to dress them, to contain them. Then you see that basically they accept the game. And even, I will go even further, here I see a truly possibilities of a further catastrophic development. For example, in South Africa, uh, take Zimbabwe. I thought for a long time maybe Mugabe should be given a chance. But then I spoke with people, blacks from there. They told me, no, Mugabe is crazy ruining the country. And they gave me a very simple theory, which I think is basically true about Zimbabwe. Namely that uh, the problem was that after the black majority in elections took over, no nothing happened practically for ordinary poor people. If anything, there was more poverty. All that effectively happened was a new rich ruling joined with whites, black class. So now this class has a temptation when, of course, then, insatisfaction among the poor continues. The only way they see to avoid being themselves target of violence, of re uh, rebellion, of law, is to play the race card. To say, no, 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 it's remainders of neocolonialism and so on and so on. The tragedy is that although they are not doing so bad in these purely economic terms, no, like statistics, friends are telling me they worry along the same lines for South Africa. That effectively ordinary people, it's basically poor blacks live the same life as under apartheid. Some of them better, some of them even worse, especially there is much more uncertainty and crime. So there is dissatisfaction. And the pro, there are already tendencies that, so again, the only thing that really changed is a new rich black class, basically dominating the country together with very strong still ruling white class. So the temptation of the black class is in order not to threaten their own privileges to play the race card, no? And this I see, and here again, I agree with you, international capital it's a very tricky thing, you know. You can do your reforms. If, if they go too fast, capital flees and you are where you are. Which is why, incidentally, I am getting, I'm sorry if you disagree with me, more and more critical about Chavez. I think he's more and... First, I admired Chavez. Why? Because he was the only one, apart from Aristide and later uh, Morales, who did something which is crucial to do. He really politically mobilized this Indian, aboriginal Indian in the sense of whatever, uh, 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 majority there. And this is crucial. I mean, uh, basically dominating the country together with very strong still ruling white class. So the temptation of the black class is in order not to threaten their own privileges to play the race card, no? And this I see, and here again, I agree with you, international capital is a very tricky thing, you know. You can do your reforms if, if they go too fast, capital 
please, and you are where you are. Which is why, incidentally, I am getting, I'm sorry if you disagree with me, more and more critical about Chavez. I think he's more and, first I admired Chavez. Why? Because he was the only one, apart from Aristide and later uh, Morales, who did something which is crucial to do. He really politically mobilized this Indian, aboriginal Indian in the sense of whatever, uh, 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 majority there. And this is crucial. I mean, uh, people in favelas, slums. If we don't politically mobilize them, we are approaching a silent, at least civil war, eternal. There, but now all that he is basically doing is playing the typical Latino-American populism with American dollars or for whatever with here. I don't see any actual change in social structure. It's the usual process. Middle classes are flying out, industry is regressing, he's going in... Follow, he's rather following what was bad in the Cuban Revolution. For example, do you know that they already import Venezuela, fertile country, they already import 70% of their food, and so on and so on. So, uh, I agree with you, but nonetheless, this, I think, what does this mean? This means, of course, we have to play tricky games within the regime, but my answer would have been, this is, like you said, if you just put, if you, you see, the way you formulated things is that the two players were international capital and local, uh, and local, local, not local, sorry, nation states. Everything is permitted here to our struggle. One game which is much more important than may appear, maybe also in India, I know in many African countries it's tragic. For example, years ago I read an interview with the Minister of Economy of Mali, Republic of Mali. He said something shocking to me. He said, we don't want from the West any of your help. We just ask you, please respect your own free competition game rules. He says, and I checked it up with my friends economists, they go, do you know that Mali produces the best cotton in the world? for one-third of the price of American cotton. To protect their own cotton producers, United States give more money to subsidize their cotton industry than the entire state budget of Mali. In the north, Euro Europe is doing the same milk industry, Nestle, and so on. So, you know, one of the fields of struggle is even... It's, simply to play, to put the pressure on the West, you know, what's so shocking of the West, it's that it's not liberal free market capitalism, they cheat like crazy, my God, when it's in their interest. United States who uh, spoke about state, you know, United States like to play these games giving advices to poor country, diminish bureaucracy, more free market, where they should begin with themselves, my God. So, you know, there is the, but my main thing would be, I agree with you, as long as you move within these two coordinates, international capital versus, uh, versus uh, state, the battle can be won, which is why I think 
what is really needed, and we will have somehow to reinvent it, reinvent them. If not, then we are lost, maybe. Some kind of a international solidarity movements, uh, and so on and so on. The, the old motto that English practiced to perfection with you ago, you know, rule and divide, one Maharaja against the other with all this multiculturalism and so on, no? That's the enemy more than ever today, I claim. So again, yes, I agree with you, there are even more problems here. If I'm not mistaken, what uh, you said uh, throughout your lecture, uh, for me it uh, meant that there is a very deep crisis in Marxist theory. Crisis, uh, crisis in Marxist theory. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, but you didn't spell it out. So, uh, I, I think uh, whether you mean it is a, so deep that you have to rethink at basic theoretical propositions of Marxism, that is one. Uh, even at the historical materialism, etc. level. Secondly, uh, uh, there is a shattering of a vision, shattering of the utopia, shattering of the dream. So there was a certain kind of communist dream and well, I'm talking from whatever impressions I got from uh, your lecture, but you didn't spell it out. That's what the second question also is uh, related to. Uh, so after a debacle or whatever happened in the Soviet Union and East Europe and China, uh, even Cuba and Vietnam, uh, there is, uh, for the rest of the uh, exploited people, there is a, uh, for the movement, it is a shattering of the old dream, old vision. So uh, whether you want to say that there is a necessity of creation of new dream on the basis of a new theory, uh, uh, development of the theory and radically new theory. That is one aspect. Secondly, there was no mention of uh, gender exploitation throughout your lecture. Uh, I can understand that uh, you, uh, if you don't talk about caste system because it is not the global level system. But gender, gender exploitation is world over and your presentation appeared to me as a classicist kind of a presentation in which you consider only class. And changes in the class uh, relations, changes in the uh, class forms, etc., etc., etc. So, uh, you don't refer to uh, the basic uh, exploitation relation which is related to uh, all human beings in a very different uh, sense and half of the society is exploited because of which. So, I, I was wondering why this. Thank you. Okay. Maybe uh, I'm not sure... I, because of a bad sound, I totally understood what you said, so let me just try to answer first, crisis of Marxism, of course, but nonetheless, you know, when people ask me, but how can you be sure that your new communism, whatever will it be, will not repeat, turn up into the same kind of deplorable totalitarianism like Stalinism and so on and so on? Well, my brutal answer is that... Uh, you already have it. Stalinists already, already repented themselves as most efficient capitalists today in China and so on and so on. I, my, my reproach to pro-capitalists here is, sorry, Stalinism is now your problem. All Stalinists already reinvented themselves as, as uh, more efficient and ruthless. You know, if you, if you think that I exaggerate, I have some very good friends in China and they send me a book which made me very sad. 
the official sacred book, you know, every communist party in power has the book of history of our party, which is tells the official myth, no? Uh, like the famous history of Bolshevik party. And okay. And the guy gave me two editions and brought my attention to a fact. In the latest edition, one chapter is censored of the official history of Chinese Communist Party. The, uh, the chapter describing the significant role of the party, you know, when nonetheless in the 20s and early 30s before war with Japan, there was some kind of explosion of development, at least in Shanghai and that part. There, the Communist Party played a very honorable role of organizing workers, trade unions, strike, and so on. That chapter disappeared because it may have given wrong idea for today. You know, <laughs> like what they really are afraid. Nobody cares about religion if it's not politically independent. What they really fear is ecology. If you probe too deep into it and uh, trade union independent workers' organizations. There you really risk it. So what I'm saying is that, uh, for me, again, Stalinism is no longer my problem. The problem should be for advocates of capitalism. How do you explain that, you ca that the most efficient form of capitalism is with Stalinists in power? That's your problem, not mine, if you are there. Uh, when you said of necessity, but precisely of new dream, but precisely for me, necessity in the sense that if we want to live a dignified life, we will have to do it, but not necessity in the old Marxist sense. I don't think there is any historical necessity. But now, the most interesting aspect, which will be again, I agree, problematic, with you. I totally support all these struggles, gender, race, tolerance, and so on. The reason I don't emphasize them too much is not only that others talk all the time about them, but another reason. How ambiguous can some of these struggles be? For example, let's take the United States American feminism. Okay, of course I support it. But, you know, uh, whenever I read American feminist text, at least the majority of it, I'm always shocked by the implicit class bias. In the sense that not only it's not class neutral, but basically they don't say it, but the whole metaphor and so on, to cut a long story short, working class are those idiot, uh, fundamentalist, patriarchal, who beat their wives and so on and so on. There is... And, okay, there are many who are much better, but they are rare. The ones who, you know, really do questions about exploitation of uh, Mexican workers, immigrant Spanish women, who really connect the two. But even there, I don't like this culturalist bias. How American cultural studies, how should I put it, automatically transform a problem of race, intolerance, racism, into a cultural problem. You would have thought that Americans exploit 
Mexican immigrant workers because they don't tolerate their cultural otherness or whatever. For me, it's exactly the other way around and so on and so on. You know, this is what I don't like there. And it's the same again with, uh, you know, feminism, uh, you, you, do, you do know it was marginal, I know. But nonetheless, how? Feminism was even incorporated into the justification of the American attack on Iraq, no? Or Afghanistan especially. We go there to liberate women from, and as it is always the case, the result was the opposite one. Whatever you say about Saddam Hussein's Iran, and it was a horrible regime, I'm totally opposed to it. Sorry? Iraq, sorry, Iraq. But nonetheless, he, in, you know that under Saddam, the situation of women was far better than in the majority of other Arab countries because only at the end, for political reasons, Saddam started to flirt with Islam. Before, he had a kind of a secularist, uh, secularist pan-Arab nationalist modernism as ideology. He created in the first 10 years of his rule a very strong secular middle class, doctors, and so on. And... Uh, the paradox is that the main social result till now of the American occupation is, in this naive liberal sense, big regression. Iraq is now, after they went there to liberate women and so on, a much more religiously fundamentalist country than it was, than it was before. So again, uh, what... Uh, I'm not in any way, uh, I claim, a class fundamentalist. If anything, I precisely showed how we cannot any longer speak about the old type class exploitation, because uh, why not? Let me give you an extremely simple provocative example. If you define working class as being exploited in the strict Marxist terms, and also at the same time accept that labor is the, main, the only source of value, then I'm sorry to tell you, you have to accept that Chavez Venezuela is exploiting the United States. Because they are, basically, Chavez does what he does because he has oil. Oil, for Marx, is not a source of value. I'm not saying, of course, claiming this. I'm claiming we have very radically to rethink Marx, things are happening today in the functioning of capitalism, and I'm even very modest here. You know, we have all these journalistic phrases, postmodern capitalism, post-industrial society, whatever. I don't like these post-theories. I claim these are mostly, even if they are interesting journalistic cliches, we don't yet have a real good theory of what goes on today in the world. It's as simple as that. We need theory more, more than ever. Okay, now I'm making propaganda for... <laughs> ...seen your argument. Yeah. After you said, do not personalize the enemy as one of the current strategy to deal with the new capitalism. You said of the incredible amount of money China invests in USA. Uh, and you said, this is how the US survives now. Now that US need $1 billion per day, huge part of US economy is owned by Chinese and you again said Saudi Arabia is catching up. My question is, see, look at us, Asians have no such Western or European fear of China or KSA, owning up US or Western assets. Now that maybe the boot is in our legs. But Europeans have this fear of their cream economic assets owned by outsiders. 
anyway you are a radical leftist so how can aren't you as a normal european not as a radical leftist as a normal european betraying a european eurocentric bias and fear of the non european like the yellow peril uh, isn't it your unconscious eurocentrism is coming forth unconsciously isn't it uh, first uh, First I put it, uh, now I will say something which may shock you, but my Eurocentrism is not unconscious. I even wrote a text precisely to provoke all my enemies and friends, shamelessly entitled, A Plea for Radical Eurocentrism, and so on. Because I claim that, uh, that uh, 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 how should I put it, I will say now something very provocative. I think that European project of enlightenment and so on is self contradictory in the sense of the, it's not the whole truth about European enlightenment to say yes it's universality it's a false one it's only a mask for particular European interests and so on and so on what you have to admit is also that how should I put it European enlightenment was always strong enough to to the, the way one should Europe you have to admit that European enlightenment was always strong enough to mercilessly criticize itself. And this you have to admit to Europe, that it, it had so-called uh, cultural imperialism and so on and so on. But this idea that, for example, the idea that Europe is not the center, Europe is just one among other cultures that every life world, every culture is ultimately contingent. It doesn't, that, how should I put it, a particular life world is not a category of truth. That you should experience your own life world as something contingent, ridiculous. I like this idea. I think this is the only way to respect each other. Not just to respect each other, but to make fun of ourselves to each other. I never like this polite multicultural, and I'm not kidding here. It's terribly serious what I'm saying. I'm always suspicious of this uh, UNESCO respect, you know. Oh, how great is your culture. I like, don't be shocked, I will immediately explain what I mean. I like racist jokes, but not use them in the racist way. In my country, ex-Yugoslavia, we were all the time telling dirty racist jokes. They were the best thing to keep us together as friends. Because they were not jokes against each other. I met a Serb or a Montenegro guy, and we joyously accepted, assumed racist cliches about ourselves and made fun about it. For example, one of the republics of ex-Yugoslavia was Montenegro, the small one. Their racist cliché is that they are lazy, absolutely lazy. At the same time, you should know you get earthquakes in Montenegro. So I met recently a Montenegro guy who told me, now I discovered, you know how we masturbate in Montenegro. You dig a hole in the earth, you put the penis in, and you wait for the earthquake, because we are too lazy even to move. And You know, there is something very, for me, this is the only way you really overcome racism. If I come to India, and you tell me, oh, our great past, great traditions, F three points off, I tell you. Tell me a dirty joke, we are friends. And I'm doing this, as you know, no? 
so you know, I'm very serious here. You know, what I really hate is racism masked as a pseudo-respect. You need a little bit of obscenity, and I'm well aware that obscenity is an ambiguous thing. I'm well aware at the same time I've written chapters on it, how every structure of authority also has always this underside of vulgarity, brutality, obscenity. I served the army, I know how this works. Army is not only order, discipline. Army are brutal beatings, dirty jokes, obscenities, and so on and so on. But nonetheless, I think obscenity is neither to be celebrated nor to be condemned. Obscenity is a field of a great struggle. Who will appropriate obscenity? <laughs> I'm just calling your attention, attention to one of the remarks you made in your presentation. That is, capitalism has its own father. And uh, capitalism has its own father. That the authoritarianism or father figure works inside capitalism that prevents you from uh, desire. And, and uh, you be... Sorry, can you explain to me, what do you mean capitalism has its own father? Yeah, you, during your uh, talk... You mentioned that capitalism has father and that he prevents uh, uh, the, uh, the members from enjoyment or whatever, some kind of liberal enjoyment or uh -huh. whatever. Uh -huh. And uh, I'm, uh, this struck me because you being a Lacanian psycho psychoanalyst, yeah. probably uh, cannot think of uh, father and uh, symbolic order. Uh -huh. yeah, I'm coming to that point only. And uh, uh, this uh, the amazing of wealth and uh, private property actually comes from the familial. And uh, that is uh, ultimately, I think, the inevitable logic of uh, capitalism. And we time and again speak of the need of a left politics very huh? passionately. And uh, I very much suspect uh, whether a truly left politics is possible without shattering of the symbolic yeah. or the father figure, the Oedipus. Yeah. And uh, we should be able to speak from the uh, 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 beyond the position of... No, I'm sorry, there are many others. I have yeah. to stop it with this. And uh, unless and until uh, the shattering of the I and the familial, uh, there may not be a truly left politics, may not be possible. And uh, otherwise, there is every chance of it to lead into softer forms of authoritarianism that is witnessing mm. in uh, capitalism or a harder form of authoritarianism that leads to fascism, either in the form of mm. Nazi politics or... This is very interesting question. Maybe I don't... Mind. I, I would also like to... How did historicism okay, fail? Let, let him okay. say in one sentence. What? There are many others you can't uh, jump up and Okay, no, I, very briefly. But this is a very interesting topic you started because you know what I tend more and more to think? And I just here follow already some, it's not my eccentricity, some old Marxists like, okay, Marxists, Western Marxists. I don't think that, how should I put it in very naive terms, paternal authority, patriarchal family is a mode of, how do you call it, social life which fits today's permissive capitalism. I claim that already in so-called totalitarianism to, to, uh, to understand how figures like Hitler, Stalin functioned, they are not paternal figures. 
They are not figures of the father. In order to properly develop this in psychoanalytic terms, one has to go to all this distinction between what Jacques Lacan calls the name of the father, paternal authority, and the obscene superego. Superego is not paternal authority. So again, this is my problem also with some of the feminists. I claim that, uh, uh, again, that it's a myth, to put it in very naive terms, again, I have a lot to learn from here, but if I go to a developed Western country, what is there in the very ordinary sense, the ruling ideology, in the sense that what is this inner sense of duty, what do people, what kind of pressure do people get from society, what should you become? I claim it's, some, it's not create a family, it's something like a blurred pseudo-oriental pseudo spirituality, spiritual hedonism. It's something like be dynamic, be truly yourself, realize your potential, basically it's enjoy life, be truly yourself. It, and it's even what is praised, you know that I read somewhere a very good analysis that even love, love in the sense of this you know, I see you, sorry, I will not look anyone into the eyes, then I will be accused of harassment or whatever. You, okay, no, I'm not gay. Fuck off, okay, but sorry. But what I mean is that, uh, like, you know, I look you into the eye, all my life is ruined. Uh, even this is considered not trendy or whatever. The idea is this easy life you reconstruct if you fall in love. They even in a manipulative way like to refer to India. More and more now in Western uh, uh, these agencies where you want to marry or find a partner, the latest fashion there is to say I, we will enable you to be in love without falling in love. And they literally claim the, the thing to avoid is this moment of fall. You know, I see you, oh my God, my life has changed. They say, we will analyze you and we will find you a partner. Then we will give you a training with body language, how for the two of you to fall in love and no trauma, no passion, everything will be under control. And their reference are you. They claim as usually Western obscurantists like, that they follow the ancient Veda writings that they found there and this. Uh, they claim we can do these old arranged marriages in a modern scientific way. We should learn the wisdom and so on. So you see, I'm, I'm, I, the big question is, what is today the predominant ideology? I claim it's not patriarchal ideology any, any longer. So paradoxically, I claim that... Uh, 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 how should I put it? Uh, you know, if we want to analyze phenomena like fascism, authoritarianism, and so on, no, on the contrary, what you can show is that if there is one feature which unites, and I don't like the term, I've written a book against it, but nonetheless, to simplify, so-called totalitarianism, it's the undermining of family. The fear of totalitarianisms was always that if parents control the child's education, the child will not be enough under social control. So in Nazi Germany, in Stalinism, in my own country, the pressure was always there, at least when the regime was harsh, for children to potentially even betray their parents, you know, not to consider family as the ultimate cell of uh, the ultimate figure of of authority so again i doubt if 
Oedipus to follow Gilles Deleuze. I doubt if Oedipus is, Oedipal family is our big, our big enemy, how should I put it? No, it's a very tricky question, you know, what happens with authority, how authority functions, even to amuse you, just with another example, even, I'm sad I didn't talk about that, but it wouldn't fit the title. For example, how beliefs function today. I claim that it's total bullshit, that stuff of uh, conservatives who worry, today people no longer believe. We believe more than ever only in an impersonal way. You believe, but you don't have to. The model, at least in the West, for me is, if you say, now I saw even signs here, Christmas, Santa Claus. You ask a parent, do you believe in Santa Claus? They will tell you, no, I'm not crazy. I pretend to make my child happy. But then you ask the child, do you believe in Santa Claus? He will tell you, no, I'm not crazy. I pretend to get from parents. But you know what's my point? Nobody has to believe, but the belief functions socially. And this is what we call cynical era of ideology. And even another phenomenon, I repeat myself, I know, Okay, from Hyderabad, you were not there, but sorry to repeat it. This is why I like, in a more detailed cultural analysis, phenomena like, do you also have here the misfortune of watching those stupid American TV series, like comedy series, like Cheers, Friends, where crucial, laughter is part of the soundtrack. This is for me an extremely mysterious, wonderful phenomenon. How does it work? You sit at a table yesterday in the evening, you watch at the screen as an idiot, the screen laughs for you. <laughs> at the end, you feel relieved as if, even if you didn't laugh. This is a very important psychological lesson. The others can not only do the work for you, others can also laugh for you, cry for you, and especially believe for you. A typical believer today doesn't have to believe himself. You need another to play the naive idiot for you. You say, I am a pervert, but my, my children have, has, have to believe, and so on and so on. So, you know, think, things are so... For, to uh, finish with a joke probably known to most of you that you know, yeah? Which I think it's a condensation absolute of how things function. Day. Sorry if you know it. Niels Bohr Copenhagen, you know, the great physicist. You know the story. He was visited at his house in a countryside by a fellow scientist. Above the entrance to his house, country house, there was a horseshoe, which in Europe is a superstitious item, preventing evil spirits to enter the house. And the friend asked him, listen, why do you have this up there? You are a scientist. Do you believe in this superstition sheet? Niels Bohr answered, of course I don't believe in it, I'm a scientist, but I have it there because I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> That's ideology today. Beliefs function, you don't have to believe. That's nice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So all I'm that grateful to you and I'm sorry, the only way to overcome, I claim, now I will shock you, Racist spread. I'm sorry if I was a cultural imperialist. Is the only way to fight racism is universalized racism. We make fun of each other to each other. We will be friends. Next time we should do it. Thank you very much. <laughs>